They're famous for strudel. No, they're not. I told you. She, she can't. She won't let me wear my hat. It's upbringing. I'm not going to like it. And I'm wearing my crappy glasses that squeeze my head, so I'm going to be cranky. Um, okay, well, today, so we're going over the church at Pergamum. Last week, we went over the church at Smyrna. And there are some remarkable similarities to in the letters. Uh, but to begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll read the passage. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, uh, for the chance to come together and to learn something about your word, to be edified, and indeed to come to worship you. And I pray that you'll just be with us and enlighten us, and indeed renew our minds with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, if you're not aware. Sorry, that was supposed to be a lot funnier than it was. Um, starting at chapter 2, verse 12, to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Some very interesting and cryptic phrases going on here. So we'll just jump right in. To start, we're gonna, I'm going to do a little bit of a, the history of the church or the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was an inland city located in Western Asia Minor, which back then was the, the province of Anatolia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Pergamum was a little more inland, not like Smyrna and Ephesus, which were port cities. Um, you first hear it mentioned in history by Xenophon. If you guys are, if you took Greek literature or, or poetry or anything like that, you may have heard he was a, uh, Xenophon was right up there with uh, Socrates and Aristotle. He was, he was a historian and he was a poet. And if you've also recall the 10,000 mercenaries in the service of Cyrus the Younger about 400 BC. So that's when we start to hear about the city come into historical recognition. Now centuries later, after its growth and development into a prominent city and capital of a kingdom, Attalus III, the ruler of the kingdom of Pergamum, granted his entire kingdom to Rome. So he literally gave the city, his kingdom, to Rome uh, upon his death in 133 BC. And the city became the capital of the province of Asia. Now, by the time John wrote 
the, the, the letters to the churches of Asia, uh, the province, near the end of the first century, Pergamum was the third city to be addressed. It was no longer the capital. It used to be the capital. So what you'll see, or if you, if you study history, or if you look into what was going on in the city, it was roughly the size of about half of Tulsa. Okay, Tulsa's current, now the Tulsa proper, uh, the population I believe is right around 250,000. Uh, Pergamum was right around 100, 125,000 estimated. So it was about half the size of Tulsa. So a lot of, a lot of people there. And it was also kind of a melting pot because of, of the location so you, you, you had a lot of, you had Jews, you had Greeks, you had Romans, uh, you had the Germanic people, you had Asian people, and uh, all different people of different tribes. Um, it had a community of Jews at, from at least the first century BC, but no evidence of an actual synagogue being there, and nothing directly relating to the Jews is mentioned uh, in the letter to Pergamum. Um, now... Jesus, a few years after his ascension, sent a message to his followers who lived in Pergamum, and he recorded it in this book of Revelation in chapter 2. Now, there's some interesting things when you start looking into what Christ is addressing here when he talks about Satan's throne or the throne of Satan. What I didn't know is the throne of Satan is an actual place. The city of Pergamum had a lot of different temples to different Greek gods, Roman gods, um, gods of various parts of the world, because remember, the Roman Empire was a melting pot of different cultures. Anytime they conquered a culture, they adopted their gods and ultimately assimilated them. It's kind of like the Borg, right? Anybody? Okay. Um, it, within that city, there was a temple. Now, I wasn't able to find what the temple originally was, but sooner or later, it became known as the actual throne of Satan. An interesting fact, about a hundred years ago, this actual throne, this temple was excavated. By the way, this is a photograph. This is not a computer-generated picture. This throne of Satan exists in Berlin, Germany, in a museum. Interesting thing. It's an actual place. So you can see the people to scale here. I, I had no idea that such a thing actually existed. That's kind of interesting. Um, and Christ talks about it here. It was a literal throne, and it figuratively represented the seat of Satan's influence in the ancient world. Um, <coughs> oh, it was uh, there. I wrote the date down. It was ex excavated in 1878, so it was about 150 years ago, give or take. So addressing the, the letter to the church at Pergamum. Now, the character of the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was a political capital, uh, capital of, of the Roman province of Asia the Less. Now, when John wrote, Pergamum had been the capital of the region for more than 300 years. Okay, so it was a capital city, but by this time, no longer. The city was noted, uh, it was the noted center for cultural education, had one of the biggest libraries, only comparable to the Library of Alexandria. Estimated to have almost 200,000 volumes in the library. This picture right here that I found is believed to be an actual depiction of the library. So a pretty amazing feature, um, architecture and things like that. And when it says volumes, obviously, you know, when you and I, we think of volumes, we think of books, but in that time it was, it was scrolls, okay? And I found an example, and you've seen this before, I'm sure, of an ancient scroll written on papyrus. This was also an extremely religious city. It had temples to the Greek and Roman gods, Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus. Uh, 
It also had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. Now remember, when we talked about the church at Smyrna, the letter here, about the time that the, the letter of Revelation, the book of Revelation was written, was about the time that the Roman emperor started to shift worship of any god that you choose to compulsory worship of the Roman emperor himself. And it wasn't that you could no longer worship your Roman or Greek gods or whatever god that you wanted, but you must first acknowledge that Caesar was God. And if you weren't here in last week's class, I had a little box. And remember, in order to, it was a very public thing. Because if you did not worship Caesar, you would become publicly ostracized. And what you would do is they'd have a temple, I, I would assume, about something like this. And a lot of people came to gather. It's where they discuss different things, different topics, laws, politics, things like that. And once a year, you would come to that temple and you would grab a piece of incense and you would burn it or you would drop it in a little, a little box and it would be burned. And you would say, Caesar is Lord. What the Christians in Smyrna would do was simply withhold that incense and say, Jesus is Lord. And that would either cause them to be, well, it would cause them at a minimum to be uh, politically ostracized. They would lose jobs. They would lose all sorts of things. Or that could actually cost them their life. And just actually, it depended upon who they were. Now, some 50 years before Smyrna won the honor of building the first temple, remember, cities competed. These cities in ancient Rome, uh, in this province, would compete for the right to build the temple. This city um, won the right to build the first temple to worship Caesar Augustus. If you recall, Caesar Augustus was the Caesar during the time of Christ, okay? Uh, Augustus Tiberius, actually, in the province of Asia. Uh, Pergamum, this city was especially known as the center for the worship of the deity known as Asclepios. I don't know who, or how to, excuse me, I don't know how to pronounce that uh, correctly. This god was represented by a serpent. Asclepios, if I'm saying that correctly, was the god of healing and knowledge. Now, there was actually a medical school in the city. Kind of interesting. Um, and because of the famous temple, the Roman god of healing, or because of this famous temple and the Roman god of healing, the sick and the diseased people from all over the region would come to this place, and what they would do is this temple was filled of snakes, venomous snakes, all sorts of snakes. And what they do, the sick people would lay in the temple and sleep at night, and if the snakes touched them without biting them, it would heal them. That was the belief. Very strange belief. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, I just kind of went back over what I said. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of God himself, and it was believed to bring healing. I would dare to say it would bring uh, what is that? Adrenaline. <laughs> Jesus describes himself to the church, and um, Jesus describes himself to the church at Pergamum. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation, uh, we go back to chapter one, verse sixteen. John observed that Jesus out of, uh, John observed of Jesus out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. Remember that when John had a vision, he saw a sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. Now Jesus showed this two-edged sword to the Christians in Pergamum. Now the description of the sword in Revelation 1:18 helps us to associate with the mouth of Jesus. In other words, the words of Christ. Jesus will confront his church with his word. 
the sword mentioned. Now, this is worth looking into. When you and I think, when we hear the verse, the Bible or the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We've heard that before. We kind of picture a sword being held by like a knight, right? Every time we see the Ephesians 6 passage on the armor of God, we always see a knight with a big shield and a big sword. But the reality is the sword spoken of there was actually a dagger about six to seven inches long. It was a surgical knife. The word of God is actually referred to not as a big broad sword, but a surgical knife. Interesting to think, why would it be referred to as a surgical knife? This reminds us of the passage in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The actual translation is two-edged surgical knife. Most people don't know that. Piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus would use this sharp two-edged sword to make some separation among Christians in Pergamum. He is separating the believers from the non-believers, the wheat from the tares, and how is he doing it? With the truth. The truth actually always divides from error. Now what Jesus acknowledged that he knows about the church at Pergamum, part three, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine living in a city as a Christian where the literal throne of Satan is believed to be? And you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Antipas was Herod Antipas. His dad was Herod the Great whom tried to have Jesus killed in Bethlehem about 30 years prior. If you remember, he gave the edict that, that said that all of the firstborn children were to be killed. This was the son of the Herod that tried to have Jesus killed, who has now come to faith and has been martyred for the faith. <clears throat> he was killed among you where Satan dwells. He says, I know your works. Jesus said this to each church. In every letter that Christ addressed uh, to all of the churches, he says, he makes it clear that I know your works. Lost my place again. It is true, each, uh, it is true of each one of us. He knows our works, even if there isn't much to know. He also says, and where you dwell. Now, what I should have covered again, as we did last week and the week before, the goal of this class is to think, Remember, the Bible, when the Bible speaks, it always has a direct and immediate application of some kind. We often forget that. We, we gain biblical knowledge just for the sake of having knowledge, but we often forget that it actually has a practical and immediate application in our lives, if not at least our mind, but also how we live. The questions I want you to consider for yourself is what are the correlations of this letter to you personally? How does it address you personally? How does it address the local church, our church? And how does it address the universal church? And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In many ways, Pergamum was a stronghold of satanic power. It's not as though Satanism was prevalent in this region. It was the fact that error of religion was prevalent in this region. There are many different opinions as to why Pergamum was such a stronghold of satanic power. 
Some believe it is because Pergamum was the center of pagan religion. That's what I actually believe, especially of Asclepius. Um, some believe it was because Pergamum had a huge throne-like altar dedicated to the Roman god Zeus. Some believe it was because Pergamum was a center for the ancient Babylonian priesthood, but this is tough to prove conclusively. Others believe it was because Pergamum was the political center of worship demanding Roman government. I think it's all the above, if you just kind of use your, your critical thinking there. And you hold fast to my name, despite the fact they live in such a difficult city, the Christians of Pergamum held fast to their faith in Jesus. Hold fast to my name. They didn't deny the faith. Jesus praised the Christians at Pergamum because they did not deny his faith. Now, he speaks again of Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. One specific man among the, among the Christians of Pergamum received the precious title, Faithful Martyr. This same title was held by Jesus um, also in Revelation 1 verse 5. Antipas was a man who followed Jesus, who was like Jesus. Now, Antipas is one of the great, almost anonymous heroes of the Bible. Here's, history tells us nothing about him except for, um, there's, there's not much history about him, actually, that he was other than he was the son of Herod uh, the Great. Antipas lived where Satan's throne was, yet he stood against the attacks and evil around him. Now, he fulfilled the meaning of his name because Antipas means against all. Kind of an interesting thing. Martyr is, now this is also an interesting, um, for those of you who missed it last week, are you familiar with this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Okay, if you haven't read any of this book, do you guys know how each one of the disciples died? Or did you know that almost all of the disciples were martyred? This book starts out talking about how each one of them were actually killed. And it wasn't very pleasant, okay? But the importance of this book is what you'll find in church history is some of the great reformations, not just the great reformation, happened because of the martyrs, okay? Men willing to go to their death because of, because of their belief in Christ. Martis, or martyr is the ancient Greek word for martis. Martis is a most interesting and suggestive word. It's a classical Greek uh, word, and it means... This is true, and I know it. That's what martyr actually means. This is true, and I know it. It wasn't until New Testament times that martyrs ever meant martyr, like it means now. Now, what Jesus has against the Christians in Pergamum, but I have a few things against you. Now, think about the impact or the power of this statement for Christ himself to address our church and say, I have some things against you. That's a pretty powerful and daunting statement. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. One of the most often found common denominators within the fall of civilizations and churches itself, the fall of the men of God, it's always sexual immorality. It always comes back to that to some degree. Thus you have also, oh, excuse me, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I have a few things against you. Again, the Christians in Pergamum were rightly praised for holding fast to the name of Jesus and keeping his faith. At the same time, their difficult environment did not excuse the few things that Jesus had against them. 
you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a prototype of all corrupt teachers. According to Numbers chapter 22 through uh, chapter 24 and 31, Balaam combined the sins of immorality, idolatry, and to please and it was to please Balak, who was the king of Moab, because he could not curse Israel directly, if you remember that story in your Old Testament. When Balaam counseled Balak, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The stumbling block was connected with idolatry, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. If the church in Pergamum had those who did the doctrine of Balaam, it showed that they had tendencies towards both idolatry and immorality. Sexual immorality marked the whole culture for the ancient Roman Empire. Does this sound familiar? Sexual immorality marked the whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire. It was simply taken for granted, and the person who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered a strange person. To paraphrase the Roman statesman Cicero, cited in Barclay, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed to the love of many women, he's, he is extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom of our age, that which the freedom of our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? But also with the customs, oh, sorry. When did anyone find fault with it? Do these things sound familiar? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with, with uh, doing whatever we feel like? When was such permission denied? When was it that what it was not allowed was not allowed? <laughs> the way they, sorry, this following the way they speak is kind of hard. To keep from sexual immorality in that culture, you really had to swim against the current. Okay? You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you remember in Revelation 2, chapter 6, which we covered last week, Jesus praised the, um, actually it was the week before, he praised the church in Ephesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans also had their doctrine, and some, and some among of the Christians of Pergamum held, the, held to the doctrine of Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans' doctrine, if you recall, was basically, do what thou wilt. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Has anybody ever heard of something called the Law of Thelema? The law of Thelema is basically the doctrine on which all, all current or modern Satanism stands. See, true Satanism, if you've ever studied the different religions of the world, Satanism doesn't actually worship Satan. I mean, some of it does indeed, right? But Satanism actually gets you to worship yourself, to elevate yourself, which ironically is what Satan himself did that caused him to get cast out of heaven. The law of Thelema was actually a phrase that was first coined. It wasn't first used. It was first coined by a man by the name of Aleister Crowley. You've probably heard a song by, about him from Ozzy Osbourne. John Smiley, he doesn't want to talk about. The phrase, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, is on, on which the church of Satan stands. Do whatever makes you feel good. Do whatever you want. And the amount to which you will hear that in modern day society, especially music, um, shouldn't actually surprise you too much. Okay, so what Christ wants the church at Pergamum to do? Did I skip something? I did skip something. I apologize. I'm trying to not do that. 
Let me back up a little bit. The Christians of Pergamon were like the Christians of Corinth, as Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. They were too tolerant and accepting of false doctrines and immoral living, and Jesus had to rebuke them. Satan could accomplish, couldn't accomplish much by persecution because many did hold fast like Antipas. So Satan tried to accomplish his goals by using deception. Remember what Charles Spurgeon said, true discernment is the difference between, between knowing what is true versus what is almost true. It's deception. It's getting you to question what is actually true. The strategy was first violence, then alliance. Now, a difficult environment never justifies compromise. It is easy for a church in such difficulty to justify this compromise in the name of we need all the help we can get. We need to be unified. Does this sound familiar? It would seem as though the problems that our modern church is facing is nothing new. It's the point that we're seeing in this letter. Now, part five, what Jesus wants the church at Pergamum to do. So he sees who they are. He sees what they're doing. He sees what they believe and what they're holding to. And he's calling them to repent of their error, to repent of their idolatry and repent of their sexual immorality. And now he's telling them what to do. So he's recognized who they are. He's recognized their problem. And now he's saying, here's how I want you to fix it. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Pretty powerful. Repent. The simple word repent stands out. Five of the seven churches are commanded to repent. Repent is a command that applies to all of us, not just Christians, believe it or not. It applies to everyone. It is Christians who should obey without a doubt. Or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Unless they do repent, the Christians of Pergamum would face the Jesus who has the two-edged sword. Judgment will begin at the house of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. The sword of my mouth. When Jesus came against the Christians of Pergamum, he will confront them with his word. Now he gives them a general exhortation to all whom will hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. We see that phrase repeated often. What does it actually mean? He who has an ear, let him hear. The danger of false teaching and immoral conduct still faces our church today. So, the, so does the danger of allowing false teaching and immorality, as was the problem with the Christians in Pergamum. Now, here's the thing that we don't think about. We know what our teaching is here in this church. We know how we're solid. We know where we could improve and things like that. That's not the issue. The issue is as soon as we step out the door, what are we listening to? What are we reading? What are we daily devoting ourselves to? What's our favorite shows that actually kind of allow for indoctrination into the way that we think and view things? It's not just what happens in this building. Remember, we're Christians 24-7. It's about what happens in our lives and in our minds. The promise of reward. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. To him who overcomes. There's obviously Christ is talking about you're going to have a struggle. It's not going to be easy. You're going to get your tail whipped sometimes. You're going to have a hard time at times knowing how to discern between what is true and what is almost true. But there is a reward. I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one except 
no one knows except him who receives it. To him who overcomes, the one who overcomes this spirit of accommodation to false teaching and living will receive hidden manna. This is God's perfect provision, the true bread from heaven, as spoken of in John 6, 41. I will give him a white stone. In the ancient world, this is interesting, in the ancient world, the use of a white stone had many associations. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, evidence of having been counted, or as a sign of acquittal in the court of law. It's kind of interesting. Jesus may have, ha may have any one of these meanings in mind, but at the very least we know that it was an assurance of blessing. Now, Adam Clark, if you guys are familiar with Adam Clark, others suppose there is an allusion here to conquerors in public games who were not only conducted with great pomp into the city to which they belonged, but had a white stone given to them. So also, if you overcome, if you were a conqueror in the Colosseum, you were often given a white stone. That's something I didn't actually know until I was doing some research on this. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, what, in, what is the meaning of this new secret name promised to him who overcomes? It is God's name, or it is the believer's name. Or excuse me, is it God's name, or is it the believer's name? This is probably the believer's new name. As many of you know, um, if you're familiar with that, when we die and we go to heaven in glory, in glorification, you're given a new name. Another idea associated with the new name is simply the assurance it gives of our heavenly destination. Your name is there waiting for you. It is as if your reservation in heaven is made. That is pretty much all I have on the Church of Pergamum. Okay, any questions? It's all pretty straightforward stuff, a lot to think about. But the most important thing that I would emphasize is how do these letters apply to you personally, the church collectively, and the universal church outside the doors? Thank you, guys.